if I think it and I think that I should do it, then I'll usually just go ahead and do it. And I've always kind of been that way. Yeah, that grab life by the horns fearlessly has always been one of the qualities I admired most about my childhood friend, Allie. In this podcast, we get to learn more about that. This is not an episode of Get to Know an Average Joe. This is an episode of Get to Know an Extraordinary Jojo. <laughs> Ooh la la. Ooh la la. Alison Hirschberg. Hello. Hello. Tell us about you. How do you introduce yourself when you meet somebody for the first time? Well, it, I suppose it depends on the context of the meeting. If it's a work thing, I may say Alison Hirschberg Williams, which is my whole name. Or just Allison, if it's just casual. I guess I got away with not saying Williams since we've known each other since we were almost 11. Yes, you knew me before I had four very long names that don't fit on anything you can fill out. <laughs> so let's talk about 11-year-old Allie. Oh. Tell me about that person and how did that person influence today's Allison? 11-year-old Allie. Well, that was a really long time ago, wasn't it? Well, you know, I was a very—I always like to entertain people, which I still like to do. So I was an entertainer, I would say, when I was 11. Uh, I was very much into ballet, as were you. That's where we met. I think we were 11 when we met. And um, I was very academically inclined at school, and then I really came out of my shell at, in ballet class, which is when I was sort of the popular kid. Yeah. Not so popular in school, I would say, as I was at ballet school, which is where I sort of, you know. Took the spotlight. Took, yes, took. Right. <laughs> yes, I took it. I mean, don't you think so? <laughs> yes, yes, I think so. Yeah, I think I did. Well, I felt very comfortable there. Mm -hmm. That was sort of my happy, comfortable place. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And then you left ballet after, I guess, a, a short semi-professional yes. time. Yes, I was 19 when I had chronic tendonitis in my Achilles tendons and sort of got tired of going to the doctor every day and having therapy after every class every day. And I was on a lot of medication for the pain. And I finally just decided that it was time to look realistically at, you know, what the future might hold. So I went to college. How did college go? What did you decide to do in college? Well, I, you know, I wanted to be where the cool kids were, so of course I became a studio arts major. <laughs> um, but, you know, the problem with that for me was that I really just wanted to do what I wanted to do, and I was never very good at any kind of perspective. So uh, I was a studio arts major for three years, and then I decided to be a little more practical, and I switched to art history, and I got my degree in art history on the six-year plan. Uh, so how practical is that to go for art history? <laughs> Ask my parents. <laughs> it's funny. Now, twice you've said, uh, you've mentioned about cool kids. Yeah. So how important is that the, the groups around you and a sense of belonging? When I was younger, it was very, very important. And now as an adult, I really don't care. But, you know, I, I guess by cool, I mean more... What's the word? In indie, kind of. I always gravitated towards the, you know, kids who weren't doing the mainstream things, the, who weren't doing the trendy things. I always went for the more artistic kind of out there 
group. So to me, that was cool. So when I say cool kids, I guess that's what I mean. Um, Because I think cool means different things to different people. But for me, cool kids were the kids who were doing their own thing and kind of forging their own path and not necessarily following the rules. Who had enough sense of self to do that. Yeah, maybe so. Just the independent kind of independent away from away from the trend trendy and now you're a mother of two girls and how much do you see their personalities being shaped by looking around at you know group belonging or deciding to forge their own paths I can't really compare them to me because I grew up in Seattle which was a very you know very different place than the LA my kids are growing up in now so there's, it's just a completely different world. So I can't really compare them to their childhood to mine. But, um, you know, they're both very, very aware of what's happening, what's trending. You know, kids are really savvy these days, as are my kids. And they're online and they're on YouTube. And so, you know, they're very aware of themselves and where they fit in. My younger daughter, who is seven, is much more independently minded and cares less what people think of her. My older daughter is a little more self-conscious and would really prefer to blend into the crowd. And so if that means doing something that may be a little more trendy so she can blend in, Mm -hmm. then she'll kind of, I feel that she'll, she'll do that just so that she can be a little more anonymous. Whereas my younger, my younger daughter really could care less what anybody else is doing. She just wants to do her own thing and she just doesn't give a shit what anybody else is, thinks of it. <laughs> but don't you think that as parents we do compare, you know, how, how I was as a kid compared to the kid that you're raising? Oh, yes, for, oh, definitely. I mean, I think when I say their experience was different than mine because of our environments that were so different. Right. But as far as our, you know, behavior and teaching them, you know, rules and behavior and things like that. I mean, sure, I want them to follow in my footsteps and be respectful and, you know, follow the rules, but still push the boundaries and just like I did. So yes, I encourage them to be like me in that way. But I think that our, our just our environment and our, and the context in which we live is just so very different. It's really hard to, you know, you just have to take that into account when you're trying to raise your kids, especially girls, I think, in a place like Los Angeles, which is so um, it's, it's superficial. It, it certainly is like uh, in certain contexts in certain ways, but, you know, also we live in kind of a small, uh, a very community oriented neighborhood that, um, really values independence, I think. And, you know, we're not, we go to public school. We're not, you know, sort of, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't want to throw shade on anybody else because everybody does their own thing and whatever works for them. But, you know, for us, we just try and keep it real. What parts of your ballet history are still with you today? So there are certain things in the studio that we learned. There are certain behaviors mm-hmm. that we groomed. Mm-hmm. Uh, which ones of those are still with you today in your profession? I like to follow the rules. I'm very aware of, you know, working within parameters that have been set, I think which is very ballet, you know, it's very balletic. There's a very important hierarchy, hierarchy in ballet, which we were talking about earlier, you know, having to do with respecting your elders and your teachers. And um, so that's, uh, you know, I take that with me into the, just the world in general, not just in business, um, but just respecting, respecting those who've had more experience than I or, you know, are in a higher business 
level than I am. I don't know. It's kind of silly, but I think that's from ballet. Um, what else has stayed with me from ballet? I am, I still dream in ballet. What does that mean? I dream, I sometimes I'll dream that I'm in a perfect, a, a, a pirouette that is so perfectly balanced that I can't come down. <laughs> I'm stuck on point. I just keep slowly sailing around, slower and slower and slower until I'm just stuck there. And, I, and I'm just looking around like, does anybody see that? <laughs> That's glorious. It happens often. Wow. Yeah, I have these perfect pirouette dreams. And frequently. Okay. I have good pirouette, but perfect pirouette dreams. <laughs> um, and what else? Oh, well, also, of course, the body image thing never leaves you. And I don't take that with me into work. But just in my everyday life, like, as you know, we're, we spent our formative years in front of a mirror in leotard and tights. And so our... Pretty, I, pretty revealing stuff. Pretty revealing stuff. And it makes you very aware of your body and other people's bodies. We were talking about our kids earlier, and, and I certainly noticed body rhythms. Mm-hmm. I can tell which kid of mine is coming toward me from a long, long distance just because of the stride that he takes. Uh-huh. And I don't think that people notice body rhythms that way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's true. We're very attuned to the way we move our bodies and the way others move their bodies. And you just, I mean, that's what we're, that's what our eye was trained to see from a very young age. So, of course, that's what we notice about people. Exactly. You were talking about parameters and setting certain parameters and being comfortable knowing where the boundaries go. Mm-hmm. I was listening to an interview with John Stewart, and he was talking about creativity mm-hmm. within parameters and how you cannot be creative without knowing where the boundaries are. Mm-hmm. Your job is super creative. Like you are supposed to think of things that appeal to get TV viewers to watch a certain program. Uh For example, do you agree with Jon Stewart? What do you think about creativity in the context of parameters? Just, you know, parameters as far as knowing what's been done before and what is acceptable. I mean, in my job, everything has to go through legal. It's just not going to make it on air if it's you know, if it doesn't pass that legal test. So for me, those are my ultimate parameters in my work. Um, So we always try and push it just as far as we possibly can, but we have to be aware of how far is too far. Even though we're cable, we're still, you know, it's not HBO, it's not pay cable. And so we have to be aware of, you know, what's acceptable and understand our audience. So... But I, yeah, I like to, I like to push boundaries and um, I'll push them as far as I can. But you, you do have to be aware just legally of what you can and can't do. I want to ask what you think of today's celebrities, because you come close to working with celebrities. Your job is to promote celebrities. What do you think about our culture of celebrity? I don't, gosh, I don't know. That's a tough one. It's, well, first of all, it pays my mortgage. (laughs) So... Um, I appreciate it for that. Uh, I think for me, celebrity, I really think of it in the context of my children and how they think of themselves. And I just, you know, I don't know. It's very superficial. You know, it's just very superficial. And all of these celebrities have a public life and they have a private life. And I think, you know, what people see is the public life, which is really them just playing a public role. And then they go off and they have families and they have problems and, you know, just like stars. They're just like us. They really are. <laughs> so, you know, I think celebrity is just a role that, that celebrities play. It's a job. It's just another job. Mm-hmm. 
And so, and living in LA, you know, I frequently just see them on the street. I mean, they really are everywhere, especially where I work. I work at Universal Studio, uh, you know, Universal City. So everywhere you look, there's a celebrity, pretty much. They are really just like us, but I think... But we do treat them like extraordinary human beings. I, I don't. Mm-hmm. But I think people, I think, yes, I think people do. Some of them like it. Some of them don't like it. It's just a, really a part of their job to relate to the public in that way mm-hmm. because it helps their, you know, it's just the way they have to live. How do you keep in touch with your artistic side? So you, you have a nine-to-five job basically or nine to six or nine to seven or whatever you have you have a a job that you have to report to every day you have this background in classical dance Mm -hmm. you also were an artist at one point you Mm -hmm. did paintings do you keep in touch with your artistic side or or how do you fill that part of what your soul needs to do or needs to express yeah well I miss painting and doing my art but I really do not have time to do it. I've got, you know, children and a full-time job, and I also do this part-time job, which is teach spinning. Um, in, I, I'm an, a spinning and certified spinning instructor, which my mom and dad sort of refuse to acknowledge. <laughs> but you're having such a good time because you really light up when you talk about spinning. Yeah. Well, it's really funny because it's probably the closest I'll ever get to dancing again in a professional way. So what do you mean? Well... You're, you are doing routines to the music. And, you know, I'm also teaching people, so they're watching me. I mean, in essence, you are really on stage. You're facing your students. They're facing you. You're up on a platform. You're performing right. for your students. And you have choreographed routines for them to do to the music. Choreographed routines, which they do and I do specifically to the music. I mean, it's very much a dance for me. I know that other instructors teach differently, but for me, it's all about the music and the routine. And so it's very artist. It's, it's a very good way to express myself artistically in that way. And also, music is so important to that. And so I've really gotten into into listening to music now, which I listen to in a very different way now than I used to. I mean, everything is pretty much. Can I spin to that? I don't know. <laughs> can I spin to that one? I don't, maybe. But you would like your parents to acknowledge that you are a spinning instructor. They, my mom, I can hear the wind go out of her sails every time I mention <laughs> that I taught a class. Mom's like, oh, mm-hmm. anyway, how are the girls? <laughs> just completely doesn't want to, just doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't understand it, thinks it's silly or stupid or whatever. It's fine. I don't even mention it to them anymore. Okay. But I, but I enjoy it. And the funny thing is that I have this really great, inf- interesting, jo- actual job with E and whatever. But whenever I meet people, they all want to talk about spinning. That's what they want to talk about. They want to know about the class and how it works and why do I do it and what do you get out of it? And I mean, that seems to be a really compelling subject for people. Like they just can't believe that. So why do you think that is? I really don't. I'm not sure. I don't know, but I find it very interesting. And I love talking about it, of course, because it's fun. And it's new for me. Like I've only been doing it for about six months, but... But yeah, people are fascinated. They just can't believe that I teach teach a spinning class, <laughs> and neither can I, frankly. But it's you know. But you did choose it. I mean, you were you were training with spinning, and just there was one day when you thought, "Why am I not up there?" Or how did that happen? Well, to be honest, my original motivation was if I taught it, I wouldn't have to pay for it <laughs> because it's expensive, and. Um, and then, of course, when I started thinking about it and thinking, ah, you know, I could do this. And I started, before I ever started teaching, I just started collecting music that I thought would be really good t- 
for a spin class. I thought, if ever I teach a spin class, and I had this huge collection of songs that I thought would be perfect for a class. Mm-hmm. And, and then, um, so I really did it originally for the, so that I could not pay. And I was like, I'm there anyway. I'm taking the classes anyway. I might as well teach it and do it for free. And then once I started teaching, I realized that, there, that there's a whole new component to teaching. There's this gratification that you get from teaching students and having people come and, you know, appreciate what you're doing and be thankful for you. They come up to me after class. They they are so grateful and thankful. and They feel changed after 45 minutes Is it or 45 an hour. It's an hour. And they're sweating and they're, they're happy and their endorphins are firing and... Then they come back for more, and it's hard. It's a, it's not fun. I mean, it's it's fun for me, but really, it's really hard and challenging. But the people who come and are so leave they they come in and then they leave happy and then they come back for more, and it's just this whole new level that I wasn't expecting at all. I just never even thought about that component of it before. Positive reinforcement all around. You said earlier you had been saving music, if I ever. Yeah. Uh, you're a person who delivers on these if I ever's. Describe that. What it, What is it in you that makes you actually deliver instead of just thinking, huh, one day I will maybe try that? I mean, I don't know. It's you only live once. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag YOLO. Yeah, I, I, you know, I like a challenge, and I, I mean, if I, if you, if I think it, and I think that I should do it, then I'll usually just go ahead and do it, and I've always kind of been that way. But do you acknowledge that that's not super common? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really think about it in in terms of what other people are doing or if it's common. I mean, I that's just always kind of the way I've been, and I, you know, I think I have a lot of confidence to just go ahead and try it and risk failing but I have kind of gone forth and just taken a lot of leaps of faith and I feel like I've been both lucky and I'm just I'm a I'm a pretty positive person and so if it doesn't work out I'll take I'll just take it as a lesson and pivot a little bit but I'm always trying to move forward and grow and do different things and stay vital you know, and active and engaged. And because I don't like to be bored. Right. So I really like to just keep challenging myself. And um, and so far, it's worked out pretty well. Our final question for everybody on this podcast is to describe the ingredients of a great day for you. A great day for me will probably start off with a spin class with my favorite instructor. <laughs> Yourself? <laughs> no, actually. <laughs> No, I still like to take classes from other instructors that inspire me. So I have one instructor in particular who I love. I love her music. And she always gets me going and gets my endorphins uh, firing. So I'll go and sweat the hell out of it for about an hour. And then my perfect day, I mean, are we just being perfectly honest? If I don't have to go to work, which I love working, but if I don't have to go to work, it's all about, really, it's all about me. So I'll go get a mani-pedi, and then maybe I'll go get a lovely lunch with a beer, and then I'll go pick up my children and get some ice cream because they love ice cream. And then, you know, just sort of hang out. I mean, I really just like to hang out. Doing things around me that I, with people that I love, I'm pretty easy to please. I hope you get a day like that soon. Me too. Thanks, Sally. Thanks, Dode. That was Allison Hirschberg-Williams. 
Next time on Get to Know an Average Joe, the brighter side of technology, photography, football, and sports. Adam Lloyd's wonderful expat life. Moving to Italy, actually, I felt I was getting closer to them, even though the distance was, was greater, far greater. You know, I wasn't seeing them every weekend as I was. But actually, technology, I think, has, has certainly helped uh, me connect more with, with my with my kids as well. I mean, my son, you know, we're, we're competing every week on, uh, on the Xbox, uh, playing FIFA and, you know, chatting online. Thanks for listening. And now, if you'll excuse me.